Hey, um, we are doing a new series at the moment, and the series is called Holy Following Christ. I just love a little bit of feedback. Is this, is this going well for people? What are we thinking? Yeah, yeah, cool. We're a couple of weeks in. This is week um, five. Yes, week five. Um, and what we've done so far is we've just set the series up with a couple of important things. It's about this journey of following Christ into Parisos Zoe, where he promises in John 10 that we will have Parisos Zoe, that is a full and abundant life, or as the message puts it, a life better than you can imagine. But how does that work? Like, how do we get there? How do we actually achieve that? Well, to achieve it, to get there, we have to follow Jesus in his way. And to follow him in his way, it takes us into these different aspects of how we will then live our literal lives, this life we're living. And so we've been talking about these six facets of life that we find in Jesus, so we haven't just pulled these out of thin air, we see these in the life of Jesus. And what's interesting is there's kind of like a counterbalanced nature to them as well. So we have the compassionate life where Jesus is all about the poor, he's all about justice, but then opposite that there's also this thing of a consecrated life, this holy life, a life lived in holiness and and set apartness. Uh, We've got the prayer-filled life, this kind of almost monastic life, but opposite that you've actually got the incarnational life, a life lived working, a life lived in public, a life lived in service, a life lived in action. Uh, We've got the word-anchored life, a life that loves the scriptures. And then opposite that, we've actually got the spirit-empowered life, this life of the spirit. And all six of these is the whole, holy life of Christ. And we are seeking from now until Christmas to deep dive on each of these. And we're currently in facet number one, the spirit-empowered life. And last week, Last week we had Aaron. Aaron came and guest spoke and it was just an awesome kickoff. Uh, We're going to do a couple more weeks on this one and then we're going to move across to the Word Anchored Life in a couple of weeks' time. Um, But today we want to look at the second part of the Spirit-empowered life. And today, what I'm titling today's talk is the Jesus vision. Jesus' vision of the Spirit-empowered life. That's what's on the tin. I hope it is what it says it is. And uh, today for our reading, I, wasn't, I was going to invite my friend Hannah up to come and do the reading, but she messaged me just before church, like so many people kind of have to at the moment, saying, I've got a cold, I've got a tickle in my throat, I'm going to be staying home today. So I'm going to do the reading. So let's stand, and we're going to come to today's text. Today's text is John chapter 2, 13 through to 22. And as I finish, I'm going to say this is the word of of God for us today, and I would love you to respond. I put the respond up on the slide there, so you will know what to say when I get to that bit. John chapter 2, 13. We honor the text by standing. We honor it with with our standing as a posture to say we honor this. It's valued to us, the word of God today. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. And in the temple area... He saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. So Jesus made a whip from some ropes, and he chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle. He scattered the money changers' coins over the floor. He turned over their tables. And then, going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get those things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures, passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. 
What? They exclaimed. It's taken 46 years to build this temple and you can rebuild it in three days? You're having a laugh. It doesn't actually say that, but that's what's going on. But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Grab a seat. Did you notice verse 21? I want to emphasize it again. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. I want you to hold that line today. Hold that front of mind because that line is the key to all of this as to what we're about to speak about today. I want to start today with a framing question and the question is this. How does God move in our lives? How does God move in our lives? When I was 14, I gave my life to Jesus while singing a worship song. There was a guy with a guitar. He was leading a group of us and singing some simple words. These are the simple words. I will follow you, give my life for you. I will follow you, never looking back. And in that moment, singing those words, something beyond those words happened for me. And the best way that I can put it is it was like I internally just woke up. I was suddenly aware that I wasn't just reciting some words in some sort of form of group karaoke, but something inside of me said, do you actually mean that? I found myself starting to cry. Tears slowly came down my cheeks as I started to say to the sense that was in me, I do, I do, I do mean that. I will follow you. I will give my life for you. I will follow you, never looking back. My life was being undone and it was being put back together all at the same time as I sang that song. It's one of the holiest moments of my entire life. I gave my life to Jesus singing a song. A song that the Spirit of God brought to life. How does God move in our lives? When I was in my 20s, my early 20s, uh, I had suffered many years having a torn right eardrum. My eardrum was blown due to a friend jokingly slapping me on the side of the head when I was at youth group, and that suction tore it from left to right. When it happened, I saw a doctor who used the analogy of the America's Cup boat. Do you remember back when the America's Cup sail just went, he was like, that's your eardrum. It was actually the reason I never took up surfing, because I couldn't swim, I couldn't get in the water. I literally couldn't get in the water without the suffering days and days and days of intense ear pain afterwards. Now, one day while at church in my early 20s, a call came out for, for, for prayer, for healing. Uh, a person just said, I feel like God wants to heal some sore ears today. And I went forward and I was prayed for. A person put their hand on my head and they just said, Lord, come and do your healing work in Dan. And as I was prayed for, I could start to hear crackling and I could sense that there was something going on as my eardrum was literally put back together. I went to the doctor not long after that and he told me my eardrum was now together again and that there was a big heavy amount of scar tissue, but yeah, it was one. And to this day, now whenever I put headphones on, I can hear everything really good on my left ear, but my right ear just sounds like I've got like a pillow between the ear cup and my ear. But I'm grateful for what God did. I can go swimming again, might even start surfing. Probably a bit too late for that. Midlife crisis. Uh, But the Spirit of God did a healing work in my body in my early 20s. How does God move in our lives? You know, a few years ago, I spent the year praying through the Psalms. I spent the whole year, all 150 of them. 
I'll do something really simple. I just pray this in the morning. Come, Holy Spirit, come and fill me with your love again. And I'd open to the next bit that I'd finished from the day before. I worked through all 150 Psalms over 365 days. And I think for about 350 of those, not much happened. Nothing spectacular. In fact, all that probably happened is I just chewed on a bit of God's word. (laughs) All that happened. (laughs) But for about a dozen of those days, a dozen out of 365, man, it was like a floodgate would open. Something deep would happen. Sometimes I would sit just there with my Bible in the chair in that lounge and I'd just gently tremble a little bit in in the presence of God. Or I'd be filled with a deep grief right in my gut to intercede for something that the Psalms had just pulled me to. And I'd sit there and cry and lament as I too lamented with what the Psalms had drawn me to. And I'd intercede. Sometimes I'd have abundant joy. Abundant joy would burst out of me as I was drawn to this thing that the Spirit of God was doing with that Psalm that morning. And in those moments, only about a dozen of them, a whole year spent and there's only about a dozen to talk about, it was like the Spirit would mysteriously dial up and bring those words of Scripture to life. It was a mystery to me, whether it was doing deep intercessory work or joy bubbling up or just sitting there and gently trembling in the presence of God. How does God move in our lives today? Well, last week here at church, I was kneeling just over there. That's the spot, just there. I invited the Holy Spirit to come as Aaron finished his talk. I said, Lord, fill me again. And it was like I began to breathe in tangible peace. It was like I could feel a presence that was filling my inner body. And once it was in my body, I started to cry a bit. I breathed in a bit deeply, a bit deeper more. And I just sensed as weight came off my shoulders, weight that is incredibly heavy at the moment. And I sensed worries that started to dial down. And I was refreshed and I needed it just there. And I wasn't alone. I was not alone last Sunday, was I? Because I've had the privilege of hearing a few stories from last Sunday of people who came forward for prayer. I've had a couple of people say to me this week just a few little thoughts about what last week was like for them. I had one person who said to me, I have not felt God like that in years. That happened here. I had another person who said, it was like God was doing heart surgery on me. That happened here. How does God move in our lives? What is going on in those moments? All of those moments, that plethora of moments, and there'd be so many more if I opened the mic up and asked for how God's moving in your life. Well, what's actually going on there? What actually is that? Well, maybe a better way to answer that question is just to zoom out and to just draw a bigger arc for a moment. Let's just go for a bigger picture, a bit of a meta scene. And to set that scene today, I just need you to reimagine the lay of the spirit meeting earth land with me for a moment. And and to do this, I need you to think about the entire story of scripture from start to end. And I need you to think about an important thread that runs right through it from start to end. That thread is called temple. Everybody say that with me. It's not even a Greek word. It's very easy to say. Temple. It's a very important word today. Here's the storyline of Scripture. We've used this before. 
This is from Scott McKnight. He says, The entire arc of Scripture can be summed up in creation, cracks, covenant, Christ, church, consummation. Six C's. And that's it. That's the storyline of Scripture. It starts with creation. All is whole and unified. It's cracked in the fall. It's cracked the departure from that union. Then there's covenant. Covenant is when God calls his new people to be the people of God. He blesses Abraham and his heritage, and he says, you're going to be it. And in that covenant, he starts a tabernacle and a temple as the dwelling place to be with them. Then Christ as the new temple. That's that scripture I talked about, verse 21. Remember, his body was the temple. So Christ is the new temple. Uh, the church. The church is the fact that the believers have become the continued temple. And then consummation. Consummation is this final picture when actually earth and heaven are joined again as a finished temple. I just want to thicken this up a little bit. And to do that, I'm just going to pull straight from the Bible project. So God walks with his people. This is how it all starts. The initial glimpse of temple language occurs with the first image bearers in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. Images of the gods typically took the form of idols placed in ancient temples. The message of Genesis 1-2 is clear. God created humanity to dwell with him and bear his image in the world. And for a brief moment, there was no need for a temple structure. All humankind lived in harmony with each other, nature and God. But this idyllic picture doesn't last long. The first, into the minor chord, you know, that's kind of like this moment. The first humans choose rebellion. They are alienated from the garden, from each other and from the presence of God. Will God restore his presence among them? Well, he does. This next part is the tent and the building. Fast forward to the Exodus story. The people of Israel have been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. They're disconnected from their identity as God's image bearers. And as Moses led the people out of Egypt, God commanded the people to build the tabernacle. And this tent structure served as a place for God to dwell with his people, almost like they were back in the garden. Several hundred years later, the tent is replaced by a permanent structure that King Solomon builds in Jerusalem. It's called the temple. I'm going to fast forward down to the end and uh, it gets destroyed of course but then many years later some people return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple after exile they come back they build a second temple that's the one that Jesus was talking about that's the one that the Pharisees were leaning into it took us 497 years to build this you know that's that one however the temple system quickly fell into corruption again the Old Testament story ends with more questions than answers is it possible is it impossible for humanity to do well with God as he intended which brings us to the next one the God who walks among us you know this idea of incarnation, Jesus. Jesus is, the word incarnation can also be the word tabernacle. So when we think of, when John starts and he says, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, it's tabernacle. That's the other word we can put in there. Uh, just when we thought the story was coming to a tragic end, Jesus arrives on the scene. In fact, when the gospel writer John describes Jesus, he states that the word, oh, I'm just repeating myself here, I was just trying to riff, but it's already there. Um, John goes on to record Jesus referring to his own body, I don't know if I have a laser. Do I have a laser? No, I don't know. Anyway, I was going to point to that. Um, saying that it will be destroyed but rebuilt in three days. At Jesus' crucifixion, the curtain, we sang about this this morning, the curtain that shielded the inner room of the temple is torn. I heard your voices rise when we sang about that this morning. You know, that, what's the significance of this event? The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice that accomplished what the temple in Jerusalem never could. Through Jesus' sacrifice and victory, that's why, I saw, that's why we raised our voices today. Uh, he made a way for God to not only dwell with his people, but for God to dwell in his people. Which brings me to the last screenshot. The people are the temple. Woohoo! Let me hear you say woohoo! Yes! <sighs> There's a lot of information here. Drinking from a fire hydrant, I know. The New Testament writers continue to use temple language, but they are no longer concerned with a building. Incredibly, what they write about the temple, when they write about the temple, they talk about the people of God. 
The Apostle Paul writes, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? This big story, this thread is important because it helps us to locate at that meta level, that big picture level, that sky picture level, how the Spirit of God is engaging and intersecting in creation. The temple is the place. It's the word picture that should come to mind. It's the symbol for us to imagine. This interface of where spirit and creation meet. So by zooming out, firstly, what I want us to see is that when we talk about a spirit-empowered life, we are not just talking about some small idea. It's not just for those who like to shake and bake. It's not just for those who um, have prophetic words. It's not just for those who seem to be able to pray for healing and it works. It's not just for them. It is for everybody. We are talking about a human conversation here that has been had for a very long time. The human conversation is, what is the meeting point of the sacred and of matter? We are talking about God's interaction point with creation and with us as his people. We're talking about, as Ephesians 1 verse 14 puts it, a seal, the spirit that is like a seal placed upon the church, like a wax seal we might get on a nice fancy wedding invitation. The seal that says this is who this is from, saying this church belongs to this God. This is the church of this God, locating us in that story as the people of the inheritance of the future that God is making all things So so one more time, how does God move in our lives? That's the big question today. Well, an answer I want to say today is this. It's by this close interface of you as the new temple where God is known by intimacy and by presence and by power, by the gentle and by the radical and more. God moves in his temples. By his spirit, the Holy Spirit. The temple has changed. It's now you and it's I. So that's all very well. But then what is this whole thing with the spirit? What is, who is the Holy Spirit? What is that? How do we start to talk about that? If I'm a temple, then who is it that I'm meant to be filled by? And how is this going to work? Well, we have to remind ourselves of one of the core aspects of what we think about when we think about God. We have to talk about the fact that God is not just singular, God is Trinity. God is three in one. Now, we don't actually find the word Trinity in our Bibles. You can't find it in there. Our understanding of this core doctrine of the Christian faith actually is a gift of the whakapapa of the church. It's a gift of our heritage It's the gift of the early church fathers who who worked on this. And we don't have time for retelling that story today, although I'd love to. Uh, What I want to do is just show you how the Trinity in our Bibles is such a crucial moment for Jesus. So in Luke, we have this moment. One day when the crowds were were being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. He's baptized by John, his, his cousin, the baptizer. And as he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. So we have the Trinity at play. We have Jesus, the son, we have the spirit and we have the, whole, uh, the father speaking. And then it skipped down to verse one of chapter four. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, 
returned from the Jordan River and he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. He leaves his baptism and he goes into his 40 days of being tempted and tested. Jesus, the man of Galilee, had come to his cousin to be baptized. As he's baptized, two other characteristics enter the scene. The father speaks over him, this is my son, and the spirit fills him. And we know this because of the dove and then also how Luke starts chapter four by saying, just in case you missed it, Jesus is now full of the Holy Spirit. So here in the scriptures, we have God as one essence or nature, but in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now, there have been sermon after sermons preached on this. There's been conversations had. There's been lectures given. There's been books written. There's been so much to explain this mystery. It's just one of those mysterious parts of our faith. But I think one of the most helpful things is probably this diagram, which does look a little witchy, doesn't it? But um, let's push through. All right. Okay. So... There's a lot of deep theology in this. Let me just talk you through it briefly. Okay, God is in the center there, but here's, here's how the Trinity breaks down a little bit and here's how it sort of um, interacts and here's how it works together. Okay, the person, the, the, the Godhead of the Trinity, God is the Father, God is Spirit, and God is Son. Okay, but the Father is not Son and the Son is not Spirit and the Spirit is not Father. But just to mind, just to mind bend a little bit more, the Father is in the Son, the Spirit is in the Son, the Son is in the Spirit, and the Father is in the Spirit. Sorry, yeah, that's right, and, and, the, and the Son is in the Father. You know, Jesus literally says, like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Like, this is the Trinity playing out here in those moments, okay? So if I'm, I'm relying on the fact that hopefully some of you have got some of these scriptures in the back of your mind as I do this. But here's the beautiful part, that circle that sweeps around the outside. Not only is there these kinds of personhood that's being lived out by these different parts of the Trinity, the Father glorifies the Son, and the Father glorifies the Spirit. The Spirit glorifies the Son, the Spirit glorifies the Father, and the Son glorifies the Father, and the Son glorifies the Spirit. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast, you're definitely going to have to look at the slide of this because it is definitely a little bit complicated to convey. But from this diagram, we can draw a definition that goes something like this. If we're going to think about the Spirit just by itself, Here's a little um, explainer that I think we can put up today. Uniquely within the Godhead, Holy Spirit is the indwelling and empowering presence of the Godhead in, on us, who glorifies the Father and the Son to us. Making sense? You tracking with me? Yeah? So uniquely, the Holy Spirit is the indwelling and empowering presence of the Godhead in us and on us, who glorifies the Father and the Son to us. Empowering, that is God's power work on our lives to cultivate and to bear fruit of the kingdom that we cannot bear ourselves. We cannot make this up. We cannot just work harder. It is only through what the Spirit's doing on our life. Indwelling, and that is God's indwelling presence in our lives to experience His love and His nearness, His peace. And it glorifies, not that it's isolated, not that it's just the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone, but the Holy Spirit is living in loving union with those other two dynamic natures of the Godhead, glorifying them to us, glorifying the Father and glorifying the Son, honoring them. So let's just flesh this out a little bit more with one of the teachings of Jesus. Who then was the Holy Spirit to Jesus? So if that's the Spirit put into a diagram and a little sort of hopefully a little helpful sentence for you to take away, well, then, if we look at the life of Jesus, then who is the Holy Spirit? Who was the Spirit that Jesus was glorifying and honoring, who had it indwelling in him and working on so that he could do what he did? 
Well, in this, we need to look at John chapter 14 through to 16. I don't have time to kind of go through all this today, but that's a couple of big chapters that I just want to encourage you and say, here's Devo time this week, church. Central Vineyard, here's devotionals for this next week. Each morning, read one of those little sections up there and just ask yourself, Holy Spirit, who are you revealing yourself to be to me today? I just offer that today. In those, you're going to find the five paraclete sayings. The five paraclete sayings. Um, now, they are, let me just go through here. You can always get the slides on our website. So if you're missing slides, if you want to quickly get a photo, they are put up with every talk, okay? The five paraclete sayings in those chapters, John 14 through to 16, is Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit as the advocate, Okay, the advocate, the one who I'm sending to now come in my place. Now, he, he calls it the advocate as in like a legal sense, a person who pleads the case before the court in place of another, but also it means to call alongside. Like, like when a big brother grabs their younger brother around the shoulders and pulls them in to play a game with them. Come and play with us. Or, or, or like when a mum pulls their young child in and places them at the family table. Come and eat with us. This is what the advocate, the paraclete, the advocate means. It's the moment of a person pulling in another and saying, you belong here. Come on, take your place. So according to Jesus, this advocating presence of God, this is big stuff today, eh? I'm, I'm so sorry, but it, it's pretty good, I think. Um, if I don't say so myself. Um, the five things that the paraclete are in those verses. Oh, sorry, I've got them there, don't I? is firstly, the spirit of truth, Jesus says. He says that the advocate will be the spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit will affirm to us what is good and pure and true, what is holy. That's what the spirit is going to do. It's going to illuminate those things to us. The advocate is the teacher. You know, the Holy Spirit is the presence that teaches us. You know, we learn to pray by the Spirit. We discern our spiritual gifts and it guides them into proper use by the Spirit. We are corrected by the Spirit, not to just live in systems of the world, but in the ways of the kingdom, by love that's joyful and patient, love that's kind, love that's, you know, peaceful, so on and so on, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Thomas Manton said this, I think this is a really beautiful line, God's mind is revealed in Holy Scripture, but we can see nothing without the spectacles of the Holy Spirit. God's mind is revealed in the Holy Scriptures, but we can see nothing without the spectacles of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit illuminates the text. It just takes it from being some book to something that is nourishing us. The advocate is the witness. Number three, the, the witness. The Spirit does not operate solo as some lone wolf, but the Holy Spirit is testifying and pointing to Christ. And when we hear the good news of Jesus' life and ministry or his death and his resurrection, or if we hear about those things of forgiveness, it's the Holy Spirit who's at work in our hearts to connect those historical events of Christ 2,000 years ago forward into today into our realities. It's the work of the Spirit. Uh, fourthly, the Spirit is the prosecutor. I love this line from Billy Graham. Billy Graham said, It is the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job to love. Ooh, I heard a couple of mmms from that one. Mm-mm-mm. <laughs> Billy knew how to say it. The Holy Spirit is the presence of conviction, whether externally or internally, who, who points in, out in us what's wrong. And when a sense of justice or compassion arises up in us about an injustice, that's the work of the Spirit. 
When a sense of something in our life being highlighted as wrong or corrupt or broken or sinful, it's correcting in us. That's the work of the Spirit. Uh, fifthly, I just want to keep racing along. It's the guide to the Father. You know, as Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing, it says in John 5.19, so too the Holy Spirit speaks to us and leads us into what the Father's heart is for us. All that the Father has belongs to Jesus. The Holy Spirit takes what belongs to Jesus and then declares it to us. And so Jesus is with his disciples. He is saying in these beautiful sayings from John 14 through to 16, that it is good that he, as in Jesus Christ, is going to leave them and depart. Because now the Spirit, the Advocate, the Paraclete, can come and be in the world, working in his place. The Advocate will do these things that we see in Jesus, actually, but the continued work of them today, right through 2,000 years later into the church. And in John 15, 11, one little verse I do want to pull out of here. In John 15, 11, Jesus actually rejoices that that's so. And he says, I have said these things that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be complete. Richard Foster says this of this moment. Jesus was leaping for joy in the Spirit, for now it was clear to him and the others that the power ministry of the promised Holy Spirit was transferable to ordinary disciples. That's good news for us. This is really important today. Life with the Spirit is not some burdensome life or some drag. It's actually where joy is to be found, where life is to be found, like a nourishing well. That is the life of the Spirit. And Jesus is rejoicing that it's played out this way because then we'd be free of the burden of just trying to do what he told us to do. And instead, we would have an advocate with us that we don't just do it in our own strength, but we do it with him. In his absence, as in, in Jesus' absence, we would be with God in this new way. And to Jesus, it's even better. Because to have the Spirit is to have the companionship of God. Remember that diagram I showed you before? Spirit is God. It's important I clarify something here. You know, we, we often say at Central Vineyard that we want to pursue Jesus. We kind of make Jesus the most important one. And the reason for that is because of a couple of theological ideas, like um, out of Colossians where it says Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. So that's a really helpful thing. Like, okay, well, if it's in Jesus, I know that I'm walking the right thing. It's really tangible. But this, this, is a, this is a bit of a, uh, maybe a bit of a rejig here today. Just to remind us to say, when we say Jesus, we also mean the Spirit. You know, this is the biblical reality we have to get our heads around. Christ visibly reveals to us what the invisible God is like. But in those paraclete descriptions, Jesus now tells us what the invisible Spirit is like. Tracking with me? So we can go from the invisible to the visible back to the invisible. He is telling us what God's work will be like for us once he's gone. He sets us on this tangible way, the beatitude way, the Sermon on the Mount way, the ethic way, this type of way of being, compassionate, word anchored, and so on. And then he, he lets us go off with this new companion, God himself, 
the companion who's going to reveal to us the truth along the way. He's going to teach us along the way. He's going to help us to see Christ for who he really was. He's going to convict us of what's wrong. He's going to convict us of the things in the world that aren't right. And he's going to guide and speak to us along the way. And the greatest thing about all of this is that it's not just some function, but that it's part two of what I want to say. To have the Spirit is to have the charis, the gift of God. It's a gift. And I think we forget this one far too easily. The Holy Spirit is received, not grasped. You know, we cannot coerce or bribe the Holy Spirit. In honest fact, many of our efforts only impede the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you were here last Sunday, who was here last Sunday? Show, show of hands, just a few hands. Okay. Did anyone else notice that that moment of God ministering to us started without anything to help us along the way? Did anyone else pick up on that? Aaron didn't get the, like, you know, where the, where the Nord is, the Lord is, is the, is the joke. You know, the Nord keyboard? Like, get up there, play that keyboard, and the Lord shows up. There was no keyboard. There was no, oh, we didn't even change the lighting. You know, we didn't do anything to help. In fact, it was super awkward, wasn't it? It was just super peered back. Aaron led us in nothing but two things, word and heart. Without any magic dust, without any music, he just started to ask us prayerfully to consider our longing for God. Consider your longing, he said. Consider God coming to meet you, to know him more, and to be known by him more. And God's gift to us in that time was his presence. You know, the gateway to experiencing the work of God by his spirit is always this formula. Ask and wait. You know, Luke 11 says this. It says, uh, you know, how much more will your heavenly father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord to help me. He turned to me and he heard my cry. You know, when we pray for the Holy Spirit to come, we're not asking for the effect or for the zap. We're asking for a person to be known to us. We're asking for God. And God in his love and his mercy responds with himself as the presence, as a gift to us. You know, if we just go chasing the effects of his presence, we might get some. But the effects will not satisfy in the long run. And so we need to be mature here. Central Vineyard, I'm calling you to a maturity in this in this moment. We need to ask and wait for the Spirit of God to, give, to be the gift that it is, the indwelling and the empowering presence of God who fills us with his love first. This was true for Jesus at his baptism. He was first filled with the Holy Spirit. He leaned into that presence to fight temptations and then his public ministry began. Then he served. Then he poured out. The filling preceded the effects and so, of course, yes, we are to pray for the effects, and we always do, and we always will. But it should pour out of first having encountered the gift of God, the companionship of God, the knowing of God first. And then the beautiful things can pour from there. So let's not get around the wrong way. We must seek the gift that is the presence of God with us. That's the main goal. That's the tonga. That's the treasure. Not the gifts, but Him. And so to illustrate this, I did sense, the reason I put that in is because I felt like I had a picture this week, a little prophetic picture that I wanted to share with you. I am near the, near the very end of my talk now. Um, so this is just the last kind of couple of things. Uh, this was the picture as I was praying my way through preparing this week. And so just this, this could be for you. Um, I saw a picture that I thought 
Uh, I, I should pass on, and it goes like this. I saw a student, as in a university student, and they were busy in their life of being a student. And they were living the best student life that they could. As in, their flat was one of those flats. It was cheap, it was nasty, it was getting the job done. And their flat didn't have much going for it in the way of delicious meals. And so they decided to go back to their parents for dinner one night. And timing things well, they arrived at dinner time, knock on the door, the parents open the door and gladly greet them, bring them in, sit them at the table, put a bunch of food in front of them, serve a portion. And they excitedly sit down at the other chairs to start to have a conversation, to be with their child, to be with them at the table. But the student, the student just puts his head down and just eats. There's no looking up. There's no taking in the gaze of their parents looking back at them, waiting. There's no conversation. There's no sense of sharing the moment, just devouring a meal. And when that plate is clear, they kind of push the plate forward, say thank you, push the chair back and turn around and leave through that same door that their parents had just so excitedly welcomed them through only moments earlier. The parents sit at the table. They were glad they got to see their child and provide for them. But at the same time, they're heartbroken that it was only ever for the food and not for them. You know, I just wonder. I just sense God saying here, I wonder if we think of the work of the Spirit as just those moments to eat something. A meal that's plopped in front of us. And we miss the fact that there's parents who have set a table and sit down and long to be with us. The Spirit-empowered life for Jesus was not just the ability to do a couple of cool things, a healing there, a miracle there. Water into wine, still a pretty cool one, I reckon. No, it was the essential and needed filling of his very being with the life of God. That he could then be the new temple of God. A life that was not his own. A vessel, a proclamation, and a witness. And when Jesus promises the sending of the Holy Spirit as the advocate to us, Jesus is saying the exact same thing to you and to me. I'm not just here to deal out a couple of meals to you. I long that you'll be filled like that temple too. That you too could be a vessel of God's love, God's power, God's presence. That God would commune with you. That you'd have companionship with God. Riley. It's all right, buddy. But that, oh, you've really thrown me off there now, man. <laughs> it's okay, buddy. It's all right. It's all right. If your wife was here, that wouldn't have happened. I know, I know, I know. But that God would be with you, active and at work, guiding you and a companion in your day-to-day -day life in all the wonderful things that he longs to be with you in. You know, the words from St. Paul are really important words for us to have. 
1 Corinthians 5.19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you not know? What an important question to keep reminding ourselves of. Do we not know? Do we not know? Do we not know? Have we forgotten? Have we let that slip? Do we never understand that to begin with? Our bodies, our lives lived, filled with God. You know, N.T. Wright says this, those in whom the Spirit comes to live are God's new temple. They are individually and corporately places where heaven and earth meet. That's worth thinking about for a while. You know, I started today with that big question, didn't I? How does God move in our lives? And I hope today I've been able to try and form a bit of an answer. So I just want to put a little snapshot here of what I've tried to say. This is my summary of today. I know there's a lot in there, but this is what I've tried to say. God has always worked through his temple. That has not changed, but the temple has changed. It's no longer some place. It became Jesus. And then Jesus' vision of what was next is that it's now you and I. What is Jesus' vision of a spirit-empowered life? Well, it's that we are the temple people. We're called and we're filled by His Spirit, by Holy Spirit. The charis, the gift of God that's given to us to be the people of God. Amen? Just take a moment to just read that again, just quietly. What's your story of being a temple? What are your moments when, like God filling a space, He has filled you? I started today's talk by trying to tell you a couple of mine. What would you have said if you had the microphone? If there's anything I've learned about being with God over the last 30 years of doing this, it's that while it's good to have some old stories, we actually can't live, them off, live off them forever. We need new ones. We need to be fresh. And in the Lord's Prayer it says, you know, give us today what we need. And I just wonder if today, just while we're doing this part of the series, the desire that we need to carry is like, Lord, fill me again. Freshen me up again. Holy Spirit, I want to be with you again. I want you to fill my life again. That I may be that temple, that place where you dwell, where you have communion, and I have your companionship. 
And so what I want to do today is I'm not going to invite you forward. I'm just going to leave you right where you are. And I'm just hoping and trusting that you might be sitting with someone that you've come with today. And just however you need to, I want to invite you to pray. Uh, I was at a thing on Tuesday night where uh, the lecturer led a moment of prayer like this. And, and he said, um, you know, if you're a bit Pentecostal and you need to sit there and shake and bake, by all means, shake and bake. If you're Baptist and you just need to go, do that too. So however it needs to be for you. But just with the person that's right next to you, just start to pray and respond. You might just want to say thank you and a gratitude prayer. You might want to say something deep that says, God, I, I need you again. But just in this space where nothing magic is happening on purpose, I wonder if God might come and fill you again. So start to pray. Turn. Gather. Group. Or sit. Contemplate. But Spirit of God, I invite you to come anew and afresh in our lives. Right where we're at. Right here. Jesus, you said you'd promised this advocate to come, the Spirit, who is an advocate for us, that we would be able to experience even greater than the things that you did. And so, Lord, we make space for that today. That gentle and beautiful work of your Spirit. Come. Spirit of God, come. We join with the church for 2,000 plus years who have just prayed a faithful and beautiful prayer. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. We welcome you. Just come. And so whoever you've gathered with, you might just want to bless them. Just say a prayer for them now. I think you should do it out loud. I think you should whisper or you should say it quietly. But pray for one another. And what might happen as we fill this room with petition and prayer?